There's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance, an economy of one. With Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Soon, soon to be changing my name to Gary Rathman hyphen Clinton. Apparently, having that suffix on your name means something in this country. We'll explore that a little bit later. Our website, economyofone.com, and economyofone.com, as is our Facebook. Go there, see what Katie puts up every day. This week, we got truly reminded of the us and them syndrome. We are the little people. The laws apply to us, and other people are not the little people, and the laws don't apply to them. Think of the time sequence over the last week, 4th of July weekend. On Friday, former President Bill Clinton meets with Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Uh, On Saturday, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spends three and a half hours talking to the FBI on a holiday weekend. And on Tuesday... James Comey comes out from the FBI and says, well, looks like she broke all these laws, did all this, but she probably didn't really intend to, so we're not going to prosecute. And then Loretta Lynch comes back out and says, no charges will be filed against Hillary Clinton. So never before have we seen this kind of stuff. Okay. Oh, I forgot one. The other thing in there is just before Comey announces that the FBI uh, will not file any charges, uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is on the campaign trail via Air Force One with President Obama. It's the first time a sitting American president campaigned with a presidential candidate that was under FBI investigation Tell me they didn't know what Comey was going to say at 11. Of course they did. Well, they, they, they know what he was going to say uh, 60 days ago, a year ago probably. They don't follow the laws or are subject to following the laws that you and I are. You know, it came out later in the week that uh, Hillary's FBI testimony on Saturday, three and a half hours, holiday weekend, was not recorded there is no transcript of that testimony and she was not placed under oath now would that happen to us little people i don't think so i don't think so that's why i want to change my name to hyphen clinton i leave the rathman put the hyphen in there so i don't always have to use it but uh if i get in trouble why, then I can pull out the full legal name and, and claim precedent. But it's just frustrating. 
It's frustrating. 70-some percent of the population wanted the FBI to prosecute her. They know what went on. You and I know what went on. Now, she's going out and saying the matter is settled and won't answer any questions about it. Matter settled. FBI said so. But it's not settled. And you know me. You've listened. I'm not a bell ringer for any candidate. I'm not going to use this forum. I'm not going to go on air and say I support any candidate. But I wonder how graciously Donald Trump is going to accept the gift that the FBI just handed him. Um, I, I just I I'm waiting, waiting for the attack ads. He wrote the commercials for Trump. All Trump has to do is compile the clips, put a little background music in there, picture of Hillary. And uh, I think he's got a a marketing campaign like you wouldn't believe. But it brought to light that frustration that the population has. We've got a, a consummate politician here. Consummate politician versus somebody that's never held a political office, never been in the military. He will be the first candidate, presidential candidate, that both has the qualifications he has and lacks the qualifications that he lacks. Never been a politician. I mean, you're you're going for the top office your first round in. So Hillary, I mean, she has been a politician her entire life. She knows the game. Now, who's going to win? I don't know. Don't know. We're still a long ways away. But this week, what happened with the FBI investigation illustrates why a populist candidate like Trump is getting so much traction. So we're seeing history laid out here like it's never been before. Now, Comey went before Congress on Thursday and talked about his reasoning and his decision, and he didn't back down. He said that, uh, you know, he's no longer a registered Republican. Big shock there, right? But he said him and his team were totally apolitical and didn't give a hoot about politics. Well, that I would believe. They probably don't give a hoot about politics, but I'll bet you they give a big hoot about their jobs and their pensions. Now, tell me there was no quid pro quo. You don't take two private jets that coincidentally meet on a tarmac in Arizona, bring them nose to nose, ban the the press from being there, ban cell phones, ban cameras, ban everything, and talk about golf and grandkids. How stupid do they think we are? And I will say to you, that's a rhetorical question. 
They think we are extremely stupid. They've got the media in their pocket. We know that. They've got uh, both parties in their pocket. We know that. There is no Republicans and Democrats. If the Republicans had any spine, if they really cared, they would take action here. But they don't because they know that the day is coming when they're going to be in the same chair and they want the same relationships. They want the same connections, that kind of stuff. Now, had Hillary been a conservative Republican, they'd have probably hung her. But that being said, Congress still takes no action. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan comes out and says, well, we want her banned from receiving classified or sensitive material. That's nothing. It's nothing. It's it's kabuki theater at its worst. If he wanted to do something, if the House wanted to do something, if the Senate wanted to do something, they could and they would. But they don't want to do anything. They don't care about you and me. They're part of that club. They're part of that elite club that is not subject to the laws that you and I are subject to. And we've seen that. Every member of Congress You know what? They passed Obamacare, but not for them. That was both parties, by the way. Labor laws, they pass on on you and me, not on them. So the, the, the thought process that they're going to work for us, no, not going to happen. Not going to happen. So, uh, this didn't surprise me this week. It disappointed me, but it didn't surprise me. And now she's dismissing any questions. It's settled. You can't ask me about that. So it'll be interesting to see how this comes up in the election. So coming up, I'm going to speak to Victor Davis Hansen about this very subject. He's written a lot on it and uh, really really smart guy. We'll talk to Victor next. I'm Gary Rathbun. It's an economy of one. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Victor David Hansen. He's National Review Institute fellow. He's been a commentator on modern warfare and contemporary politics for National Review, as well as other media outlets. He was a professor of classics at California State University, Fresno, and is currently the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, as well as a visiting professor at Hillsdale College, one of our favorites. Hansen was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2007 by President George W. Bush. He's author of more than a dozen books, including Carnage and Culture, Landmark Battles in the Rise of Western Power, and his most recent, The Savior Generals, How Five Great Commanders Saved War That Were Lost. Victor, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, taking a little time with us today. Uh, I read a recent article uh, that you uh, 
uh, wrote called Washington's Hollow Men, uh, a reference from T.S. Eliot's poem regarding the elite's privilege in Washington as, as well as elsewhere in this country. Is the magnitude of, of this phenomenon new, or are we just more easily bombarded due to the increased access to information? Well, I, I want to be empirical. I think it is getting to a stage that's novel. We always had a Washington, New York elite that ran our media and ran government and journalism, corporations, etc. But under globalization, I think that power of those people has increased exponentially. And more importantly, the culture has changed. So uh, it's more of a hereditary uh, aristocracy. Uh, and it has certain common themes. People tend to live on the eastern corridor, maybe the western coastal corridor, not in the center of the state. Mm-hmm. There's a power marriage in Alan Greenspan and Andrea Mitchell, a cat Sustein, Samantha Power, or their father to son or daughter. It's uh, John Dickerson was the son of Nancy Dickerson or... Um, People seeing in um, that are prominent are married to people. I, I don't want to go through all of them, but right. somebody like Jake Carney, who was married to Claire Shipman, who then steps out and becomes, for some reason, the vice president of Amazon, or Lisa Jackson, who was the EPA, goes right into Apple at a very high salary. So they, Robert Rubin, Tim Geithner, um, Jack Lou go in and out of Citibank or Goldman Sachs or Hank Paulson goes from Treasury Secretary or to back to Goldman Sachs or before Goldman Sachs or we could say that Thomas Pickering who ran the Oversight Committee that exonerated Hillary in the State Department mm-hmm. and then really lobbied for the Iran deal as a senior diplomat was at the time he was doing that was working for Boeing who then did a $25 million, $25 billion, excuse me, deal with Iran. So I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy buff, mm-hmm. but I'm saying that this network of media, big money, government is such that they have lost uh, touch of what the rest of us in flyover country, what life is like. And so they completely misdiagnose the Brexit in Europe and are misdiagnosing Donald Trump, and they don't quite understand that for all of those pieties about transgendered restrooms and guns cause Orlando, all of these uh, cause celebs that they have, to most people sound absurd. And then they're so out of touch that they think that Donald Trump is an orange-haired buffoon. He may be, but they don't understand why people see him as as a wrecking ball that they want to throw in their mirror and shatter it. And so I think that's where we are, and there's a lot of anger at those people because the the ideas that they have for the rest of the people, they never follow themselves. So Mark Zuckerberg out here in California will lecture all of us about how illiberal we are not to want illegal immigration, and yet in his three multi-million dollar residences, he's building walls or fences around each one of them. Right. Right. Because he believes in the idea of walls for him, but not for anybody else. <laughs> now, how did we, how did we get to this state? I mean, you mentioned the the globalization, and I hear that phrase a lot that that, that we're going to a global society, a global economy, uh, that kind of stuff. How did how did we get there? Is this a 
uh, a product well, I of think the. That's a good question. Go ahead. First of all, we're at twenty trillion dollars in debt, and that debt, and and we're running a half a trillion dollar deficit at a time when the Obama administration raised taxes up to thirty nine point five on the top bracket. They raised tax, and uh, in addition to other Obamacare related taxes. And they slashed defense down to below 3% GDP, and yet we're still running a half a trillion dollars per year. It shows you that the money is such on social programs that we're spending a lot of money, number one. And then number two, when you used to be a president of a local bank or a regional manager, you made a certain salary. But today that bank, the banks are fewer and they're larger. Same thing in every aspect, and the money is... It's just unimaginable because they're drawing on the capital and labor of six billion people, not 200 million in the old days. So, how does that translate? It means that Billy Clinton can go give a chat, or Bill Clinton can give a chat for Goldman Sachs or Citibank, and they will pay them 200 to 400 thousand dollars. Where in the past they would have never had that capital to do that. Mm-hmm. So the the magnitude of money is such it's just. It's unimaginable. And how does that translate? That means that Bill Clinton can be in a $50 million private jet and meet Loretta Lynch on our own big government, the bookend of the corporate side. They, they met their nose, two $50 million jets, nose touched where they met. And then they discussed something they, which should, they shouldn't have discussed. But to the average person who lives in Des Moines, he thinks, I've never been on it private jet. I couldn't imagine $50 million. I couldn't imagine my government having that kind of money for the Attorney General. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine how an ex-president could make that kind of money. Uh, if my wife was under audit by the IRS and I tried to go talk to the prosecuting attorney, I'd be put in jail. Right. So they're completely out of touch with what the lives of most people are like, and that creates an anger and disdain for the rest of us. And then you you get a manifestation of a, of a Trump, or as I said, a Brexit, and that, it, there's more to come, believe me, but they're just symptoms of a larger malady. More with Victor David Hansen coming up. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're spending some time with Victor David Hansen. He's a National Review Institute fellow and author of more than a dozen books. Victor, in light of the FBI investigation, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, the contradiction of his statement and, and all of us in flyover country, and I'm in Ohio, so we're right in the heart of flyover country, uh, what, what, it, it seems so obvious uh, what the the problem is there? Why is there not more outrage? And and uh, it, it seems like the the polls, whether you believe them or not, uh, even stronger support for Secretary of of State Clinton. Well, I think there's two things going. One is the one that we just discussed that we, we're at an all time high as far as the role of big money and big government and big media, mm-hmm. and that creates people who are out of touch. Although I, I did see a poll today that said most people would have preferred that she be prosecuted. Right. 
yeah, who are outside that. And the second thing is there is an asymmetry here. If we look at what happened to somebody like Dinesh D'Souza or Makula Bakula, the video maker they blamed in Gazian, and then mm-hmm. they subsequently jailed, or what happened with Scooter Libby or Conrad Black, I mean, they don't apply the standard across the board. If Hillary were a conservative Republican, believe me, I think they would have indicted her. So why is that? And I think that if we were to look at the ideology of the government employee who's invested in larger government, which comes from the left, or the media, which comes from the left, or the big Wall Street money, which basically is from the left, they say they think that Hillary is a social warrior, that she's aware of inequality in society, she's for fairness, she's for the little guy, she wants to help people, and therefore the rules should not apply to her in the same way as they would to a greedy capitalist uh, insurance broker or 7-Eleven chain owner or something mm-hmm. like that. That's how they think. And I, I say that as someone who lives on a farm during the week and then also works at Stanford University, and I go from both worlds back and forth. Yeah. So I have a pretty good idea <laughs> of the differences in attitude. In another column you talked about, and this was was interesting to me, but you talked about President Obama being an ideologue versus Secretary of State Hillary Clinton being a seasoned liberal politician and that Clinton is less dangerous. Uh, can, can you clarify that a little bit for me, given yeah. the fact? Well, I think she's dangerous, but I think the key word you used was less dangerous. Okay. And by that I mean she has no ideology at all. And by that I mean she she ran against gay marriage. She was against the Keystone. She was for the Keystone Pipeline. She voted for the Iraq War. And every one of those votes was predicated on what 51% of the people did at any given moment. But there were, when she tried to do Hillary Clinton in the 90s, as soon as public opinion went against it, she dropped it. Okay. In the case of Obama, he doesn't. Once he was reelected, or once he thought he was going to be reelected, he didn't care about his public opinion, or he thought that he could raise it in different ways. But the point is that he had an ideological agenda. He said he wanted to fundamentally transform America. Mm-hmm. So Obama sits down and he says, "How can I put? How can I basically ruin the EPA as we would see it?" I'll put Lisa Jackson there. She's an ideologue. She'll shut down coal. Let me put Eric Holder in there. He's going to just redefine the attorney general's office. Let me do the same thing with the VA. Let me get a lowest learner in the IRS that will politicize it. Whereas Hillary Clinton is capable of all of that, but she says, where's my Dick Morris? Where's the guy who's going mm-hmm. to pull on this issue and find out how I'm going to be politically viable? Because she's not a charismatic figure like her husband. She's not... Um, She's not an attractive person. She ha- she doesn't resonate with the minority communities. So Obama had certain strengths that allowed him to be an ideologue and still be successful politically. But he, he did have certain hardcore leftist agendas. And so Hilly would not say, let's call terrorism um, overseas, uh, anti-terrorism overseas contingency operations, or that jihad is just a personal journey or workplace violence for Fort Hood, mm-hmm. if she felt that the majority of public wouldn't agree with that. I see. And, and, perceived it. You know, and, and as you say that, I remember back when uh, her husband, uh, Bill Clinton, was president, that was one of the discussions we had because Dick Morris was, was guiding everything through polls. I mean, they would poll everything. Absolutely. Everything. Everything. So, so he came up when he wanted to get Clinton reelected. He thought, what are three irrelevant issues? School uniforms, 
100,000 police officers and space exploration. Yeah. And he thought that would appeal. He polled, and that's what Clinton said. And then he said, tell the people the Arab big governments over. He didn't believe it, but he said it. <laughs> and he was more pragmatic as, as Hillary is. But it just, pick your poison. Do you want an absolute hypocrite? that can be bent, will bend, or do you want an ideologue who's principled but is going to lead us down the road to serve them? And it's, right. I think each one is pretty bad, each choice. You know, there seems to be a lot of dissent between the, the parties today. Trump seems to be dividing portions of the party, and the Democrats are similar. Uh, by November, will the parties eventually unite behind their candidate? I and- think the Democratic, the Democratic Party will. I'm not sure the Republican will. I think they're, the, the $64,000 question, uh, most of the Bernie Sanders people will vote for Hillary. They always mm-hmm. do. But the $64,000 question is, will the percentage of the George Wills or the Bill Crystals or National Review staff where I work, uh, I write for, or the Weekly Standard, will they outnumber or will they be fewer than the new numbers of Reagan Democrats or people that are a welder or a truck driver who just were sick of politics and mm. political correctness, but for the first time in, say, 10, 12, 15 years, they're going to vote. And mm. I don't know that answer. I don't think anybody does. But Romney supposedly lost the election between, because he couldn't get four to eight million working white class voters out, mm. whether he was a Mormon or whether he was came across in a stuffed shirt. I don't know. But we don't know if that number is larger or greater than the so-called blue-stocking Republicans who claim, claim that they're not going to vote. And I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious of that because when you see things like happened this last weekend with Hillary and basically flaunting the law, that's going to get the establishment Republicans kind of angry and it makes their argument that Trump is no different than Hillary a little bit weaker. Right. And if we get more of those, they may quietly say, I'm not going to vote for Trump, then they will actually do so because they cannot stand Hillary. Yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to to see uh, what happens in, in November. Uh, I'm spending a little time talking to Victor David Hansen. He's a National Review Institute fellow and author of over a dozen books, including Carnage and Culture, Landmark Battles and the Rise of Western Power, and his most recent, The Savior Generals, How Five Great Commanders Saved Wars That Were Lost. Uh, Victor, before I let you go, i got to ask you a quick question. I read in your history... Uh, that you're a raisin farmer in Southern California, and your land's been in the, the family for generations. Uh, you had any trouble with the government trying to confiscate your crop, like uh, the Horn <laughs> family up there in Fresno? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm part. I was part of the raisin industry for 30 years. I'm going to almonds now, but I live oh, on okay. from my ranch south of Fresno, in the center of the state. And yeah, there's a basically the government owns everybody's raisins, and it decides how many can be sold and and for what price, and, and it's an old carryover of the Depression-era policies. And then the government says to us, you may be t- paying taxes on your property for water from the Sierra Nevada, but we decided that after the drought, we have a normal year, but we don't really want to give you the water that we're legally obligated because we want to let it run out of the reservoirs and not into your ditches, but right. out to the ocean because we want a three-inch bait fish in San Francisco Delta as a barometer of the environment. We want to make sure that we can flush him, flush more and help him, even though he's being eaten by other species and it's not the water that's killing him. Right. But right. the government controls our water, it controls our crop, it controls 
uh, the way that we use our land, especially in California, because of the state regulations, which are more onerous than the federal ones. Right, right. We followed the the Horn family case for for several oh, shows. It, yeah. it was incredible, but uh, it was. In, in the I, end. I, I know the family, and and uh, they broke the family. Wow. Uh, they went after them, and I'm at the Hoover Institution, where a lot of scholars supported him and wrote articles about how unfair that was. But mm-hmm. basically, the problem was when you produce a raisin that's on your place, the federal government can determine how much percentage. Um, you have to give to them so they can give away overseas. Right. And they reward the packer, not the farmer. And it's been disastrous. Absolutely. But that's the, way, that's the only way you can function yeah. if you want to grow raisins. And that's why you know um, 60,000 acres have been taken out of production because people got sick and quit. Wow. That's incredible. Well, Victor, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, I read all your stuff and uh, follow you through National Review and and uh, your books as well. And I and, uh, appreciate all your time today. I hope uh, that we can uh, impose upon you again and, and chat again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate your support, and thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Be well. Coming up next, there's a lot of people out there saying America is not great. Ah, well... I got an illustration that says otherwise. We'll talk about that next. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one. An economy of one with Gary Rathman. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathman. You know, there's something fairly disturbing going on out there. I saw a lot of tweets over the 4th of July weekend and throughout this week under the hashtag that uh, America is not great or America has never been great. And, you know, that, that kind of irritates me. So I wanted to think about that a little bit. And does it irritate me because I love my country or does it irritate me because these people are just stupid? And come to find, it's really both. They're stupid. You know what? If you don't like this country, if you're ashamed of this country, uh, go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. You don't see other countries where people are killing themselves to get here. This was a country, is a country that was founded on a melting pot, essentially. People coming here from all over the world and integrating into the culture. It's, it's, it's only been in recent, uh, maybe the last two, three decades, that we've adopted the concept of multiculturalism. And when you have multiculturalism, you have conflict like we're seeing here every day now. So you get people that says America is not great. It was founded on slavery, on uh, stealing land from the natives, that kind of foolishness. And I, I just have a real problem with people exercising their constitutional rights to criticize and try to destroy 
the country that gives them those constitutional rights. Now, I believe in free speech. You know what? And you want to stand up and burn a flag, go ahead. You want to badmouth your country, go ahead. But if you really mean it, if you really believe and have integrity in those convictions, then you should leave. You wouldn't stay in a place of employment if you felt the employer was non-integral, was stealing, was hurting people, killing people. Would you stay there? Eh, There's probably a certain segment of the population that would. But for the most part, no, you wouldn't. You would not want to perpetuate that. You would not want to be part of it. So, you know, I'm not one of these love it or leave it kind of people. But if you truly hate this country, the next logical step is to leave because you're just messing it up. To hold people today accountable for what people think, what you think is sins of our past, you know what? Get over it. Did we have slavery in this country? Yes, we did. Was it a bad thing? Yes, it was. But it's done. We stopped slavery in 1865. Where is slavery at today? Look at the Sudan. Look at the African nations. Look at the Middle East. Look at what's happening to people that these same people have no problem supporting. Read the stories of what this peaceful religion does to women, to people that won't bow down before them and do what they think they should do. They're killing people. They're beheading them. They're dropping acid on their faces, on their skin. And we're letting them into this country by the millions. It won't be long before we will be fighting for our very culture in this country all in the name of multiculturalism i'm not a big multicultural guy i'm a big diversity guy my family came over here in 1792 the rathmans john and martha came over from england originally from germany so we came over as immigrants also as we all did but you know what that was a long time ago And I don't feel obligated to pay or be ashamed of any sins my ancestors created or committed. They did what they did. I am what I am because of what I have done, not because of what my ancestors have done. And I will not be held accountable for that. And you want to burn a flag? Burn a flag. Go ahead. I don't care. I'm not going to try and stop you. I'm not even going to feel sorry for you. I am indifferent, meaning I couldn't care less about you. If you want to burn a flag, you want to get rid of the Constitution, feel free to voice that opinion. But if you truly believe it, if you were a person of integrity and believed that, then you should leave. As to the fact that or the statement that America is not great, think of what happened this week. Think about NASA sending a probe, Juno, 1.8 billion miles to enter the orbit of Jupiter. 1.8 billion miles, and they hit their window within a few meters. Five-year journey, 1.8 billion miles, and they hit it within a few meters, and hit their burn within one second of the calculated time. What other country on earth 
could have done that? I'll answer that for you. None. None could have done that. You don't see any Islam nation sending a probe to Jupiter to learn about the solar system and the universe. Now, can you make the case that that's useless information, that it doesn't feed anybody? Yeah, go ahead and make that case. But what makes a nation great, what makes America great, even still, is people with a vision. People with a vision that is bigger than themselves. You know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember John F. Kennedy as president saying, don't email me, I'm paraphrasing, before the end of the decade, we shall put a man on the moon. And we did. A nation collectively adopted that vision in the 60s. And we put a man on the moon before 1970. We are a nation of vision. We need to recognize that, adopt it individually, because individually having vision will create a vision for the nation. By having that vision, we have drive. If all you're going to do is look to the past and the sins that we've created, some of our less than finer moments, shall we say, in our past, you will never have a vision for the future. Politicians that say they have a vision for the future don't. It's a vision for themselves. They don't care about this country. They don't care about you and me. I've said that a dozen times, a hundred times. They don't care about you and me. They care about their power and what they can gather, I guess, for lack of a better term, what they can accumulate through a process. Now, I have learned a lot about politicians over the years doing this show. I've learned a lot about economics and the markets. And these people are not sharp. They're not real bright. Smart people don't go into politics. These people never created a job, never created a business, and never had to meet payroll, never created anything, nothing. And they never will. All they can do is take away from producers like you and me. So do I think America is great? Absolutely. I'm excited to see the pictures coming back from Jupiter. That excites me. That's a vision. That's greatness. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. Actually, Gary Rathman slash Clinton. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 